as some of you know, I have a, a, a deep commitment to and a long-time interest in ecumenism, that is, uh, opportunities to get to know Christians of other stripes and to build goodwill with those people who worship God in ways that are different from how I worship God. And I had a, a wonderful ecumenical experience this last Thursday because for the first time, I visited Bishop O'Dowd High School's campus. Now, now quite a few of our uh, congregation, members of our congregation, children of our congregation, either currently attend or previously have attended or someday will attend Bishop O'Dowd High School, so I really should have been there earlier. I should have gone in a pastoral capacity to, I don't know, support the kids in their programs, their sports, their, their, uh, their musical programs. But, but on Thursday, I was on the Bishop O'Dowd campus not to support the Bishop O'Dowd students, but as part of the traveling fan base of Piedmont High School's boys varsity soccer team upon which my son William was playing, starting in the midfield. And I gotta say, O'Dowd has a, a nice campus. It's been renovated recently, apparently, and, and it seems that one of the things they did to renovate the campus, and some of you who go there can, can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that they have, they've installed a Wi-Fi system which goes all the way out to the playing fields. And that's nice, and it, and it seemed kind of wonderful because it was modern, right? I guess I'm old enough that Wi-Fi at a playing field still seems modern to me, but what I loved about it was actually something very pre-modern, and that is that before you were able to connect to the internet, you, you know, often if you're trying to connect to the internet, they give you the opportunity to agree to certain terms and conditions, and that may have been part of it, but for guests anyway at Bishop O'Dowd, what you did is you said a prayer to St. Isidore of Seville, the patron saint of the internet. And, and, I, and, and that, that prayer was meant to invite the, the saints' protection, uh, invite your, to protect your eyes and your ears and your mind and your soul as you spent time in that somewhat addictive, morally, ethically, and intellectually dubious space <laughs> that is the internet. And so once you said your prayer to St. Isidore, then you could go online and do stuff like find out that the patron saint of soccer is St. Luigi Scrosopi. And I have to admit that I'm more than a little jealous of our Roman Catholic sisters and brothers because they got a saint for everything. St. <laughs> Luigi. Now, in my house, there isn't much of a difference between religion and soccer. And yet... Until Thursday night, I had no idea there was a patron saint of soccer and soccer players. And I didn't know, certainly, that his name was Saint Luigi. He was new to me. And I, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure why the Vatican has designated Luigi as the patron saint of soccer. So far, Saint Isidore, who besides being the patron saint of the internet, is also the patron saint of encyclopedias. Saint Isidore has been unable to assist me in finding any record that St. Luigi ever even played soccer. But still, I was happy to learn about St. Luigi uh, because he seems like a really good person to know about, a good and faithful Christian witness. Luigi was born in 1804 in Udine in what now is the northeast corner of Italy. 
He was one of three brothers in his family who uh, went into the priesthood. And Luigi's particular calling was the care of children who were living in poverty. And he started a school for children living in poverty. But unlike most schools in that time and in that place, Luigi's school was a school for girls, a school designed to educate girls, teaching them to read and to write and to engage in scholarly pursuits. And one of the more important lasting legacies of Luigi's is that young women from that school decided to organize themselves into a religious order called the Sisters of Providence. And to this day, women in the Sisters of Providence continue to educate poor children, particularly poor girls, around the world. I'd also like to think that Luigi started a girls' soccer team, but I'm afraid that would be mere speculation on my part. But I, I find Luigi's story to be inspirational. And the good news is that Luigi is far from being the only holy and sainted person to have spent a life dedicated to caring for the poor. Indeed, it would be impossible to count the number of saints and holy folk, living and dead, Catholic and Protestant and Orthodox and Christian and Muslim and Jewish and Buddhist and Hindu, and from every other system of belief and non-belief, it would be impossible to count the number of good people who have dedicated themselves to the poor over the year. Indeed, humanity is blessed with people of every place, of every nationality, people across the various spectrums of gender and orientation, elders and youth, wealthy and economically disadvantaged. We are blessed with people who give of themselves to care for the poor, the powerless, the marginalized, the homeless, the forgotten, the sick, the oppressed. Indeed, humanity has a big heart. And for that, we can be grateful. We have a big heart, and yet still we need more people to join in the work of giving our, of ourselves to care for the less fortunate. We need to be better about providing charity, and we need to do more about changing our society so charity isn't needed in the first place. And we must do this work for those who are in need, and the hungry, the homeless, those without access to quality schools or quality health care or safe neighborhoods. We need to work on their behalf but we also need to do this work with the understanding that everyone's well-being is at stake here. Not just the poor. All of us. The 11th chapter of Isaiah is a famous passage. It's one that most Christians will read at some point, at least once, during the Advent season. And, and when we're preparing ourselves for the miracle of Christmas. And I confess that for most of my life, in fact, right up until I started working on this sermon... I've read the first 11 verses of the 11th chapter of Isaiah as if it were two things, two parts. There's the first part about a stump that comes up out of the root of Jesse. It's a, it's a, it's a, 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 a prediction of the day when the Messiah will come and will, he'll rule with equity and will treat the poor with justice. And then there's the second part, which describes the kingdom of God, a peaceable kingdom, when the lion will lay with the lamb and the wolf will cuddle up with the sheep and the children will toddle around among poisonous snakes. In the past, I've read Isaiah 11 as if these are two different things, two different good things that will happen in the fullness of time. Christ will reign in a way that is equitable and just and everyone will live in peace. Both good things. This week, I tried to read the passage 
as a single unified promise. There will be peace because Christ will exercise power on behalf of the poor. I rather suspect I came to this conclusion because when I haven't been praying to St. Luigi asking for intercessions on behalf of the Highlander soccer team, I've been, probably like many of you, I've been obsessing over the news out of Washington, right? And it feels to me like what's going on in Washington is the opposite of what's being described in the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah suggests that, that society will be at peace when power is exercised on behalf of the poor. And I don't know if, if, if anything can actually be guaranteed in the real world, but I also think that the, the opposite has been amply demonstrated in Washington over the years, and especially right now. There is no peace when power is exercised in support of wealth or in support of personal gain. When political power is used to line the pockets of the wealthy or to protect the corrupt, then it creates conflict. Individuals and communities and nations are pitted against one another. Things turn violent and people sink into despair and depression and desperation. If we're going to avoid this kind of common life, or if we're going to heal our society, then political power must be exercised on behalf of the poor, the powerless, and those who live without hope. We have to change our culture from top to bottom so that we become the kind of people who want sincerely for poverty to be eliminated. But this work can start at the bottom as well. One of the unspoken promises inherent in this morning's lesson from Isaiah is this. We can all play a part in building a peaceable society. Some of us have power that is political or economic in nature, and if we use that power to help others, then we are doing our part to build a society worth living in. But even if you don't consider yourself to be privileged in a way that confers power, still your life can be lived such that others are helped. You don't have to be Mother Teresa to recognize the human dignity of those who are homeless. You don't have to be Rosa Parks to take a stand or have a seat on behalf of those oppressed by injustice. You don't have to be St. Isidore to help a child learn to read, and you don't have to be St. Luigi to recognize that part of the dignity of childhood involves play, whether that's climbing a tree or kicking a ball out on the pitch. You don't have to be St. Alice of Shea Panisse to cook a meal for someone who's hungry. <laughs> and you don't have to be Cesar Chavez to recognize the unjust conditions under which most of our food is produced. Everyone can live a life dedicated to the well-being of the poor. Everyone can build God's kingdom of peace in big ways and in small ways. This is something we all can do. This is something we all should be doing. But of course, we're Presbyterians. We worship in a desirable neighborhood in the San Francisco Bay Area, a region that has created more wealth in the last 30 years than any other region of similar size in any trio of decades at any time in human history has ever produced, right? And because of that, we are a people with more power than we know. We are people with resources aplenty. But of course we know that's not the whole story. In our region, there's also a lot of poverty. Thousands of our neighbors, many of them children, spent last night outside in the rain. 
Many of our neighbors, even neighbors who live in houses, many of them children, woke up this morning hungry. Now the promise of Advent is that we have within us the capacity to live in peace. We have the capacity to inhabit that spiritual space that we call the kingdom of God. I suspect that a lot of different kinds of work going into the fulfillment of that Advent promise of peace. And one of the things that we have to do to achieve peace is this. We must live lives dedicated to the work of helping the poor. We have many reasons to be grateful. We have many reasons to feel strong. We have many reasons to be filled with great joy. This is a gift. It's a gift to receive and it is a gift to pass on to others so that we might live in a world where even in a small way the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together the cow and the bear grazing side by side, their young lying down together, and the lion eating straw like an ox, the nursing child playing over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child putting its hand on the adder's den. We, get together, can build a world where no one will hurt or destroy because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. Amen.